Yes, so tonight's scripture reading comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you desire salvation for all people. And we see that clearly articulated from the scriptures. God, you also invite us to pray. Pray for all people. To make thanksgiving and supplications. To intercede on the behalf of others. And God, you even note uh, people in, in high authority. And so, Lord God, I pray now for the leaders of our land that, God, you would... Lord, give them wisdom and discernment for how to lead our country, um, as well as our state and, and our local government here in Memphis. God, we as a church and as a ministry here in the Young Adults, we desire to see you pour out your spirit upon this city and bring about a great revival. But God, we also know that that starts with us with personal spiritual renewal. So I pray over every individual in this room that, God, you would pour out your spirit among them. And that, God, you would speak to them from your word. As we look at uh, an important text in Scripture, um, but it's a text that can easily be taken out of context. And so, God, I pray that you would help us tonight to study your word, to to see the text for what it truly says and not just what we want it to say. God, we earnestly want to hear from you, not just have confirmed what we already believe. So God, even now, would you soften our hearts to hear directly from you, from your word tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are certain verses in the Bible that are plucked out of their context and stamped across material items like coffee mugs and throw pillows and t-shirts. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, I know my physique doesn't show it, I was a wrestler. Uh, I wrestled in high school and I did really well in a tournament one weekend. And when you do really well in a tournament, you want a keepsake, right? You want something to remember that, that tournament that, you know, you did well in. So I got uh, this, this T-shirt that had kind of the, the tournament graphic on it, and you can get anything you want stamped on the back. Uh, they had a couple things, a couple templates, and one of those templates was Philippians 4.13. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that Bible verse has nothing to do with wrestling. 
Now, I was away from the Lord at that time. Uh, I, I believe I was a Christian at the point, but I wasn't a student of the Bible. I didn't know what I was doing by getting some verse stuck on my back. I just thought it sounded really cool because I was strong, and I was strong because, because Christ made me that way. I didn't know any better. One of the verses that is often hijacked and used as some loose promise of significance and prosperity is Jeremiah 29, 11. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look together at Jeremiah 29, 11 in its proper context. The verse reads like this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I can have the app read it if I need to, um, if I didn't do a good job of it. No, I'm just kidding. An overview of Jeremiah, just to put this in its context. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. His ministry was from 627 to 586 BC. And for most of his life, he was poor, unpopular, isolated, and persecuted. His message was simple. It's too late to avoid God's discipline. So accept it and turn from your sins. At the beginning of the passage we'll be looking at tonight in Jeremiah 29, the prophet is writing a letter from God to the people of Jerusalem who have been exiled to Babylon, a foreign land. So hopefully you've found Jeremiah 29. We're going to look at verses 4 through 14. God's word says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your, all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you 
into exile. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you bless us? Speak to us tonight. As a God who reveals himself to his people, God, would you speak to our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon title for tonight is Something Greater Than Cheap Comfort. Something Greater Than Cheap Comfort. I want to give you three challenges to begin with. Uh, three challenges to the people of God in exile. We need to see what God's plans included for his people going into exile. We can easily apply some of these challenges to our own lives as we remind ourselves that this place that we find ourselves, this is not our forever home. What does God want for us to do while we find ourselves away from home? So three challenges to the people of God in exile. The first, plan to stay. Plan to stay. We see this in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. God is saying, you're not just setting up camp. You're building houses. In other words, you're going to be there a while. For some, this would have meant that they would spend the rest of their earthly existence in a foreign land. They would never return to Jerusalem. Seventy years is a long time. He's challenging them to accept the fact that they are supposed to be there so that they would put roots down instead of perpetually waiting to go home on some false hope that they'll go back someday. He says to plant gardens, eat the food they produce. He's challenging them to be self-sustaining in a communal sense. They should not be relying on their new rulers, the Babylonians, for their personal well-being. If they wait for the ones in authority to care for their needs, they will go hungry or become desperate and possibly compromise on their values. Where do you need to hear this challenge in your life, this plan to stay? Possibly for some of you, it means coming out from mom and dad's roof. I know that's what it was for me. I originally preached this text to a bunch of college students in 2015, and that's what I was going through at the time. I was trying to figure out what is life out from underneath mom and dad's roof look like. I remember having a conversation. It was very vivid. It was a Mexican restaurant on Houston Levy. I don't remember what it was called. But I remember I had just graduated from college. I wanted to leave Memphis so bad. And I wanted to be out from underneath their roof. And I really wanted to be anywhere other than where I was. I wasn't planning to stay. I was ready to go. I had dreams of going, whether it was California, North Carolina, even Nashville. And I tell you, that type of stubbornness can and will be broken by God. He humbled me. He brought me low as I knew what it meant to plan to stay. 
It was during this season that I first came across the words of Jim Elliott, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Where in your life do you need this challenge to plan to stay? Where are you rushing off to? What fantasies are you chasing that are taking you away from where God has you now? What trial are you trying to avoid with a sudden move or adjustment? And have you thought it through entirely? I had a friend whose uh, wife went into labor early, uh, rather early in the pregnancy. Uh, this was years ago, and, and they had a couple, uh, had multiple weeks still left in the pregnancy before their due date, um, yet here they were in a hospital trying to keep their baby in the womb for as long as possible to give that baby a fair shot at life. And you know what that meant for my friend? It meant making that hospital room a home. Now, that hospital room was not their home. But he had to plan to stay so that he could support his wife and his unborn child. It wasn't their home, but he made it a home. He planned to stay. And, and staying is what actually brought about life in the midst of the trial. The baby was born premature, but she was brought to good health thanks to the time she had to develop in the womb and once she was born around professionals who could sustain her. Where do you need to plan to stay? Where do you need to plant yourself and depend on God to grow you and sustain you in the midst of your trial? Plan to stay. Secondly, multiply. Multiply, and we see this in verse 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying get married and have children if you're able. Grow the community of God's people in the foreign land to which I'm sending you. And we've, we've seen this happen with God's people before, haven't we? The, the Lord, uh, he, he did this with the Israelites in Egypt generations before this. It started off well with uh, Joseph at the end of Genesis, didn't it? When he was second in command under, under Pharaoh. And then he brings uh, other members of his family to come and live so he can take care of them in the midst of a famine. They had favor with the Egyptians to start, but over time, that family grew. And generations passed, and they started to increase greatly, and then all of a sudden, there's a new pharaoh in town. And he's wondering, why do we, why do we let the, the, the Israelites stay here? We should enslave them, and enslave them he did. Well, here's God's people in Jeremiah, and they were headed back into captivity. God didn't want them to dwindle. He wanted them to multiply in a foreign land again so that 70 years later, he could rescue another generation. He wanted to glorify himself in their salvation just as he did their ancestors in Egypt during the Exodus. In order for that to happen, they, they must multiply 
They must stick around a while. What does that mean for us? Well, uh, most people in this room desire to be married someday. You hear God command this of his people to get married and have children, and you think, Lord, I wish. Make it so for your glory. Provide me with a husband or a wife. And that is a good desire. Yes, and amen to that prayer. I pray that over you, my brothers and sisters. Lord, provide these men and women with godly spouses who love you first and foremost. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. But let's not be so quick to narrow our application of this challenge. We must go back to the garden to understand why this challenge to multiply is important in the grand scheme of things. You see, in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever entered the world, God gave Adam and Eve a mandate, didn't he? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. God creates man and woman in his image, uh, in the Imago Dei. It's what gives you your intrinsic worth, that God looks at you and says, you have value. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's that you bear the Imago Dei, his image. It's like the signature on uh, an art, on a canvas. You bear his signature. You have worth in and of yourself. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. And so he commands this man and this woman, he commands them to multiply just like he says to the Israelites going into exile. We have to understand what God is doing here in the garden when he institutes marriage. He is making it so that the man and the woman that have been created in his image would reflect his glory in the world and create more image bearers who would do the same. Why? so that the world would be filled with his glory. At the heart of God is his holiness on display in his creation so that he is rightly worshipped. God is foremost for himself, and that's a really good thing, because what if he wasn't? He is the only one worthy of our worship because he is good, he is holy. He is all-powerful and all-wise. And we were created to worship him, our creator. So what does that mean for us? Well, you don't have to be married to glorify God. An echo of this mandate in the garden exists in the New Testament, and we've gotten rather familiar with it lately. It's the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, which says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority to tell you how to live your life as a disciple of Christ. And this is what he says to do. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the main verb in the Greek. That's the one that carries the weight of the entire statement here. He says, make 
disciples, as he is ascending to the clouds and he's giving his last words to his disciples, this is the last thing that's on his mind for his disciples to do. He says, make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your triune God, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The way we apply this challenge to our lives, the way we multiply is not necessarily by getting married. It is by making disciples. The goal is not marriage for marriage's sake. The challenge that you face is not who do I have to date? It is who do I have to disciple? And here's what's really great. Discipleship shows whether or not you know the Bible and are actually applying it to your life. Discipleship grows your character and your competency, two qualities that are very attractive to a potential partner. Start making disciples, disciples of your peers or students younger than you. Start multiplying that way, and one day you may get to experience multiplication in marriage. I've... Uh, discovered an appreciation for reading books to my wife while she cooks. While she cooks. Uh, I get to process what I'm reading with her and admit that there are things I don't know and I have questions and that I'm still learning. Get to ask her questions. She, get to, she gets to answer those. I get to uh, answer her questions. I'm making a disciple of my wife who will one day help me make disciples of our kids. And at the same time, I get to have guys over to my house and in my office to talk about a call to ministry or to talk about what they're learning in God's word or to help them manage some kind of crisis going on in their life. We're challenged to multiply, so make disciples. Start with what you know and who you know. Start there. You don't have to launch your own year-long D group. Just take someone to coffee. Share, them, share with them what you're learning from God's word and how you're applying it to your life, how that may affect theirs. Multiply. Third, work and pray for your city. Work and pray for your city. We see this in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. He says to work for the peace and prosperity for the city he is sending them to. He is sending them to Babylon, a city with great significance throughout the Bible, but he's sending them to an idolatrous and wicked people. He's actually using those people to discipline his people. You see, God's not just sending them into exile for kicks and giggles. Right? They sinned against him. They forgot who he was and what he purposed them to do. They punted on that. And so now he has to discipline his people. 
and he sends them to Babylon. And now he's telling his people to work and to pray for them. God wants them to work towards peace and prosperity for that city, not primarily because he cares for the Babylonians, but because he cares for the Jews, his people. And things will go well for them if they accept the challenge to work towards the welfare of their city. Um, have you ever been in a stadium? Uh, maybe it's the FedEx Forum, the Grindhouse, and you're there for a Memphis Grizzlies game. And you look over and you see maybe a neighbor or a friend who's not wearing a Grizzlies jersey. They're wearing some LeBron Lakers trash or Steph Curry Warriors trash, right? Not a John Morant jersey. Like, what, what are you doing here, right? You live here. Why, why are you rooting for the other team? They're visibly against, rooting against us. And that's not what God wants for his people. <laughs> In more ways than one, apparently, uh, God instructs the Israelites that it is in their best interest to show that they are invested in their new city without compromising on their values or beliefs. So think about Daniel in the Bible and his friends who will, in exile, stand firm in their faith while simultaneously seeking the welfare for their city in Babylon. They won't eat the king's food, and yet they will become some of his best servants. They won't bow to his giant golden statue, and yet they will continue to rise through the ranks to become some of his best counselors. They will be thrown into a furnace and a lion's den for their faith, but God will deliver them. They are to work and pray for their city. How about you? Do you work and pray for the peace and prosperity for our city? There's something truly special about working and praying. They go hand in hand. We work as if it depended on, upon us. And yet we pray as it depends upon God. If we do not pray, then we labor in vain. Scripture is clear about that. If we do not work, then we miss out on being involved in the answer to those prayers. We're sidelined when we should be on the field. We must have both. We work and pray. We pray for Memphis here at Bellevue. We pray for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon our city. We, we do that, but we also serve our city. And you guys know this. One of the ways we're serving our city uh, coming up is through Mission Memphis uh, this July. Uh, similar to our Bellevue Loves Memphis Workdays, uh, Mission Memphis is a short-term missions project in our own backyard. It's a week long of getting to serve our cities. It'll incorporate multiple projects with varying start times, durations, and locations. This is a, a church-wide event. It's not just young adults. And it'll offer opportunities for us to engage in ministry to our city. So you can serve alongside other young adults at Pepper Tree Apartments and doing door-to-door -door evangelism, children's ministry like we're used to doing, adults ministry. And, and it doesn't, I know we, we've kind of, we've got a team that's going to be there all week, but 
you are more than welcome to jump in whenever you can. Whenever you can manage some time, maybe off of work, or you have some time that you could just devote to one of those ministries at a certain part in the day, we want to include you in on that. There's ways to do that. We encourage that. I ask you to consider how you are working and praying for the peace and prosperity of our city. We can accept this challenge knowing that our welfare is directly tied to the welfare of our city. The greater the peace in Memphis, the greater the peace in our homes and lives. Plan to stay, multiply, and work and pray for your city. These are challenges God has for his people in a foreign land. But he also gives them one warning that I want to bring to your attention. We see that warning uh, in verses 8 and 9. It says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name, I did not send them, declares the Lord. God is warning his people, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. You see, there was a man named Hananiah who claimed to be a prophet speaking for the Lord, and he told God's people that they'll return to the promised land much quicker than 70 years. He says in Jeremiah 28, verses 2 through 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years. I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And that included the people. Now, this prophecy was false, but it was very popular. It seemed quite hopeful. Two years? I think I could do exile for two years. Hananiah's message was heard and began to be widely accepted as truth. And that's when the Lord came to Jeremiah and told him to speak to the people, clarifying the length of time they'll be away from the promised land and what they should be focusing on doing. So be careful who you listen to. Let me ask you something. Do the people who influence you the most tell you anything you don't want to hear? Do the people who influence you the most tell you anything you don't want to hear? Do their words offer any hard truths for you to consider about your choices in life? Or do you surround yourself with people who offer a positive mindset regardless of their personal relationship with the Lord? As if to say, I know that's from the Lord because it makes me feel good. That was Hananiah's audience, not Jeremiah's. Paul warns Timothy from one pastor to another. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I think about people who have amassed so many influencers on social media to speak positive platitudes into their lives, to suit their own passions. They can scroll for miles on TikTok and Instagram, but are rendered helpless when they open their Bibles to hear from God directly. It is very possible for even you to be swept away by some branch of the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Or towards liberal theology, questioning the validity and the authority of the Bible. Be careful who you listen to. Give your attention to the best Bible teachers and Christian leaders that you can find. If you can be present to hear them in person, always make it a point to do so. Make them your pastor. Associate yourself with their teachings so much as, they, as you see them clearly presented from the Bible. Be careful who you listen to. Now let's talk about this promise. The promise to the people of God in exile. It's the whole reason we're in this text. Now, I must tell you that this is a promise to God's people headed into exile for the next 70 years. It, is a, it was not intended for us as new covenant believers today. That being said, we can still profit greatly from this part of the passage because Scripture tells us all Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable that we would be equipped for every good work. And I think we'll find that while this passage was not originally intended for us, we can find something greater than just cheap comfort ripped out of context in these words and see how they are still true for our lives today. So the first part of this promise that God gives to those going into exile, first, God has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. We see this in the first part of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Our omniscient, all-knowing God knows exactly how your life will shake out. In his foreknowledge, he sees exactly how the thoughts, desires, and actions of your heart lead you down a particular path. He knows what you will and won't do. He knows when you will choose to sin as well as when you will choose to obey. And he uses all of it. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There are some moments God is more active than others. God does not participate in sin. He can't. He is a holy God. But he can passively allow things to come to pass. 
that would, he would redeem that sin and restore that sinner. However, Scripture tells us that our God is active in the good works that he has planned for us. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared good works for us that we would simply just walk in them. The active and passive approach that God takes at any given moment combines to form a deliberate plan for your life. But what kind of plan is that? Well, second part of the promise, God's plan for you is for good, not disaster. See that in the rest of verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Uh, the people of God desperately needed to hear this. God has a plan for them that gives them a future and a hope. There's something here for us too. And it's something greater than what happens after I graduate. Or will I get the house that I want? Or is this person sitting across from me on this date the person that I should marry? God has a plan for your life, and it is one that gives a future and a hope. There are going to be points in your life where you're convinced otherwise. In those moments or even elongated seasons, you will assume disaster, not hope. What happens when a loved one dies unexpectedly? What happens when you go your whole life without a spouse? What happens when there is no job, no new job that comes to the rescue? When there is literally no house or apartment because of a housing crisis? Or when a spiritual mentor fails you? Or your new church isn't like your old church? What will you do when the brokenness of this world enters to remind you of your reality? Will you assume it is a disaster? Or will you remember the plan? That God's plan is for good, not disaster. Third part of the promise, God hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And even 14 says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. When, while he was in exile, Daniel prayed to God three times a day. And when it became against the law to pray, he prayed anyways and was thrown to the lions for it. But God delivered Daniel from the lions, didn't he? Why? Because God honors obedience and he hears the prayers of his people. God wants us to pray. Yes, he's a talker, and he wants to speak to us from his word, but he's also a listener. He wants to hear from you. He wants to hear you praise him and worship him. He wants to hear you tell him where you missed it. He encourages confession because he's the only one who can handle your sin. He wants you to ask him for things, whether it's for your daily bread or for deliverance from temptation. 
whether it's for yourself or for someone you care about. He wants you to thank him for what he's done, first and foremost, in the gospel, but for other blessings as well. God inclines his ear to hear your prayers. So pray. Pray without ceasing, the scriptures say. Live in an attitude of prayer and dependence upon God. Seek him with your whole heart and you'll find him. You'll find him. And then the fourth part of the promise, God will restore you. God will restore you. We see that in verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Uh, material possessions and land, were, they were a big deal in the Old Covenant. Uh, they were considered signs of prosperity and a right relationship with God. So you have here a promise from God to his people in exile that not only will he bring them back, but also their riches and their fortunes. He'll put treasures back into the treasury so his people can be displayed among the nations and considered blessed again. This is where I have to remind you that this promise in Jeremiah 29 is not primarily for us. It's for the old covenant people of God going into exile. They will be there for 70 years. So they needed a message like this. We can benefit from this message, but in this verse we see clearly there is a gap between us and them. But here is where we can relate. Eternally speaking, this place is not our home. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for, for while we are still in this tent, talking about these bodies that we have, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then Jesus says to his disciples in John fourteen three, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This place is not our home. And there's only one way that these statements from God's promise to the exiles can be true for us as new covenant believers. There's only one way. There's only one way in which you can rightly believe that God has a plan for your life that it's a plan for good and not for disaster. There's only one way in which you are guaranteed that God hears your prayers and that he will one day restore you. There's only one way. And it leads us to our main point for this evening. God's promise to the exiles is only fulfilled for you if you are in Christ. It's the only way. God's promise to the exiles is only fulfilled for you if you are in Christ. Two important phrases. The first, fulfilled. God promises to fulfill this promise to the old covenant believers, and he does. He brings them back from exile, and he honors that promise. So for them, it's already fulfilled. But we know that 
this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ for new covenant believers. But the condition is if you are in Christ, the other important phrase in this sentence. That phrase, in Christ, is a big deal to those of us who are born-again believers. Our union with Christ grants us fulfillment to every promise in the Bible. As Paul says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is because all the promises of God point to Jesus. If you want to know that God has a plan for your life, you need Jesus. If you want to know that that plan is for good and not for disaster, you need Jesus. You want God to hear and answer your prayers, pray in the name of Jesus. You want to be restored someday in your rightful home, putting on your imperishable body that doesn't grow old, that doesn't get sick, that doesn't die. You need Jesus. There is something far greater here in Jeremiah 29 than just some cheap comfort that fits nicely on a coffee mug. There is a future and a hope written on our hearts for all eternity if and only if you are in Christ. Otherwise, we're banking on a promise that God didn't actually make to us, zapped of any power if it has no regard for Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, as he tells you how to live your life, as you make disciples and you teach others about how to observe the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, here's a good plan for you and for me while we're waiting for our new home in the ever-advancing kingdom of God. Are you ready? Plan to stay. <laughs> Multiply. Work and pray for your city and be careful who you listen to. And when the Lord comes or chooses to bring us home, we will see the future and the hope, and it will be something far, far greater than any cheap comfort taken out of context.